This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Now I'd like to welcome onto the stage Ron Brownstein and Steve Schmidt for our first session. We will have a one-on-one interview on presidential politics, and then we'll move into a panel discussion Uh, Steve Schmidt is a former campaign strategist for John McCain in the last election. And Ron Brownstein is editorial director of National Journal and political director for Atlantic Media Company. Ron's also a frequent commentator on CNN. He was previously national affairs columnist and national political correspondent for the Los Angeles Times, so it's a bit of a homecoming for him to return to the West Coast. He's a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist for his coverage of presidential campaigns in 1996 and 2004, and he was also the National Journal's White House and National Politics correspondent from 1983 to 1986 and West Coast correspondent through 1989. So thank you very much. Please join me in welcoming Ron Brownstein and Steve Schmidt. Thank you, Elizabeth, and it is always great to be back in Southern California. This is a sort of day that makes you wonder why you uh, ever left. And in, in, uh, in, in the spirit of our, uh, of our title today, uh, Steve Schmidt has gone all the way from the Atlantic to, Pacific, to the Pacific, having uh, woken up this morning in Maine, which is pretty, uh, pretty remarkable. Steve is now the vice chairman of public affairs at Edelman, which is one of the world's largest uh, public relations firm, uh, and of course was the senior strategist for the 2008 John McCain campaign, ran the Arnold Schwarzenegger re-election campaign, worked in the White House for George W. Bush and uh, with, uh, with Dick Cheney. So you have been in the room when presidential candidates or vice presidential candidates yeah. are preparing for debates. Yeah. What, are the, what is the series of events that could have produced the performance that we saw from the presidents this week? Well, <laughs> you know, people would always ask me when you know, President Bush was going through difficulties um, in his second term and his approval number had gotten very low. And they would say, how's the president doing? Is he, is he doing okay? He's doing fine. Mm-hmm. And so whether, whether his approval rating is 2% or 98%, the ecology around him is always exactly the same. Mm-hmm. The band plays Hail to the Chief when he comes in the room. Photographers there are taking pictures of excited people who get to shake his hand. Marines are saluting, the aircraft are on time, and they live in a bubble. Um, And it's very hard to press an incumbent president of the United States that you need to prepare, that you need to prepare, uh, that you need to practice, that you need to, that you need to be ready. You know, because of course, if you were half as smart as they were, you'd probably have a chance of being mm-hmm. president, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was so, the father used to say that, right? Uh, and, oh, George H.W. Uh, Bush absolutely. used to say, to people, if you're so smart, absolutely. how come you're not president? And so I think you come to these moments, uh-huh. um, and, I, and I think whether it doesn't matter, Republican president, uh, Democratic president, I think it's the first time in four years where there's someone toe-to-toe 
who is not intimidated, is not afraid, who's there for the purpose of telling them that they're doing a very poor job. Uh, and, and, and I think it is a totally disorienting experience. But I suspect that Governor Romney has now gotten his full attention. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so you, you expect the president's tone toward him oh, sure. and demeanor will be very different. Yeah, no doubt. I, I, I mean, it has to be. I mean, he went into that debate. And I remember so clearly in 2004, we were almost in exactly the same position mm-hmm. that President Obama was in against uh, Governor Romney heading into the first debate. We had had this remarkably successful convention. We had dominated the period between the convention uh, and the Mm -hmm. first debates against John Kerry. We all in the campaign believed all the president had to do in that first debate was hold his own. We, We needed a draw. And the election would have effectively been over. We would have we would have run out the string. Ninety minutes later, we were essentially in an even race. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's pretty quickly when all the polls wash out where the where the president will be. I think he went into this uh, with with total control um, of his destiny. He, he had the race. Um, he was totally in control of the race, um, and he let Mitt Romney back in the game in what's a structurally very close election. You know, one thing that no matter how bad the Romney campaign has been you know, over the course of the summer, over the course of the fall, is one of the things that helps them is the structure of the race. And I think that you know, the president has a ceiling of about 51.5 percent mm-hmm. and a floor of about 47.5 percent. Mm-hmm. I think Romney's ceiling's 51, his floor's 47. But the race is always going to snap back when it gets outside of those boundaries, which it has. Let's talk about that in a minute. But, I, well, you know, I, I can imagine it's easy to imagine in the next debate the president being much more aggressive going mm-hmm. after Romney. The part that really surprised me about the debate was the lack of passion he had about his own agenda. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you kind of think about where he displayed kind of energy and excitement in the debate, there was really only about 20 minutes when he was talking about stopping the Ryan vision, the tax cuts the, the conversion of Medicare into premium support. Um, it was hard to find any moment where he displayed a lot of excitement about anything that he might do yeah. in the next four years. And, you know, some people came out of Charlotte thinking that way, thinking about the acceptance speech. And I wonder to what extent uh, you viewed his performance at all as kind of a, I don't know, a, a kind of an admission that, look, these next four years, even if you win, that mainly your goals are defensive. Protect the health care bill, stop the Republican agenda, but it didn't seem like he had a lot that he was burning to, to do. I think you're reading too deeply into it. I think it's much more the case of the seven P's coming to uh, play. And the seven P's would be prior proper planning prevents poor performance. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, uh, and, you know, he, he went into that debate unfocused, unprepared, and uh, didn't have a game plan, didn't enunciate what he had accomplished, didn't enunciate what he wanted to do, and, and he just got flattened. And obviously, it got worse as it went along. Right. I mean, you know, Mitt Romney's had such difficulty connecting personally right. to the middle class. He had anecdotes about people he had met on the trail. He was full of policies then that, you know, drew upon those anecdotes, uh, criticisms of the president. You know, the president came at Mitt Romney on the question of whether his numbers added up. And, you know, if you knew none of the facts and you just watched it, you know, I think Mitt Romney was very credible in shooting down the president's criticism, the fact that his numbers didn't add up. So, you know, you had one person, I think, that understand, understood fully what the stakes were, mm-hmm. you know, heading into that debate, and, uh, and another person uh, who was ahead. Um, they've been playing prevent defense, um, and prevent defense leads to, uh, uh, to, to many a ruin and, you know, in not, sports not, and in politics, and they had a chance to put them away, and 
They just didn't do it. Not only prevent defense, but one thing that's been remarkable about this race is the extent to which the Obama team, as the incumbent president, has been able to make it a referendum on the challenger. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they really could not do that for the 90 minutes. I mean, you know, there was very, only really short points, parts of the debate where he was able to shift the fo- Most of the focus was on him, his record, his plans. Uh, and that was just much more difficult for him. It was just a very different dynamic when he was having to kind of talk about himself either looking back or looking forward. I think it was a great debate victory for Mitt Romney, but one debate win doesn't Mm -hmm. correct for a lot of the issues that have played out in a number of the states. The race will tighten. It will tighten in a number of the swing states, but the decision that the Romney campaign made in the spring and over the course of the summer that they would cede the ground to the Obama campaign, allow the Obama campaign to define Mitt Romney in these states, and that you know Mitt Romney would worry about that later. They could do it at the convention, which was a failed convention. Mm-hmm. They could do it through the VP pick, where they didn't bounce with the VP pick. If they lose this race, that will primarily be the reason, is that the image of Mitt Romney versus the reality of Mitt Romney, which we saw on display in the debate, you know, the two so far apart, and they had every opportunity over the course of the spring, over the course of the summer, themselves to define for the American people who Mitt Romney was. You never want to let your opponent do that to you, and that's in fact what Now, happened. are you thinking they're primarily about defining him in terms of his background and priorities, sure. the kind of the Bain uh, story, or also the agenda and, and uh, kind of well, who... Both. Yeah. Well, both. I mean, you know, I, I think you looked at the, you know, what was the strategic premise of the Romney campaign going into this election, going back two years? And it was that unemployment is over 8.5%. Mm-hmm. An incumbent president can't get reelected with 8.5%. So all we have to do is get through the Republican primary, be present, be a name on the ballot. We'll win the election. We need to be a plausible alternative. I think that's just not the case. Um, until Mitt Romney enunciated in the first three minutes of this debate, these are the five things I want to do as president. You think you could have held a, held a gun to the head of his, of his most vociferous supporters and they would have been unable to tell you why he wanted to run for president, why he's running for president, what he wants to do as president. Um, you, you just didn't have that articulated, you know, at any level in this campaign until that, until that moment. Um, because I think that it was very much a campaign that said, look, you know, if we go out and we talk about Mitt Romney likes to eat apples, there's orange growers out there we may offend. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we don't want to offend anyone at any time by taking a position on any issue, you know, that's even well, the least they, bit controversial. And they also didn't define him. I mean, they had 18 years from the first debate, first campaign in 1994 to prepare for the attacks on Bain Capital. Right. Uh, you know, the the uh, the release of tax returns is really a pro forma part of any campaign right now. I mean, I had the same level of outrage that the Obama campaign has on a daily basis demanding to see his taxes when we were demanding to see Theresa Hines carries taxes and, you know, in 2004. So the total lack of preparedness on these issues. You may have actually seen Mitt Romney's taxes. I may have. From, from the 2008 yes. campaign. <laughs> uh, nothing you want to share, is there? Hmm. Um, uh, but let me, let me you said about not taking any controversial positions. No. In fact, during the primaries, he made a series of strategic choices right. uh, that have had enormous resonance into the general election, okay. in particular when first Rick Perry and then Newt Gingrich emerged right. uh, as, as alternatives. Each case, he chose to go to their right, primarily with the issue of immigration and arguing that they were soft in various ways in state tuition, uh, any kind of uh, amnesty, uh, veto the DREAM Act, Arizona law, 
uh, praising it, dropped the lawsuit on day one. Unemployment among Hispanics has been double digits every month of the Obama presidency. The last five national polls, he is exceeding the 67% that he got in 2008 among Hispanics. He's over 70% in the last five national polls, Obama. How big a factor is that in where we are, the inability to uh, penetrate what has become an 80-20 split among minority voters overall couple for the of Democrats? Issues. The, the one thing I would disagree with you on... Uh, is in the case of Rick Perry, for example. So Mitt Romney's first attack, which really disqualified uh, Perry, was from the left. It was on the issue of Social Security. Mm-hmm. You know, Mitt Romney went out there, defended Social Security, said this guy's comments on Social Security make him unelectable. In the primary, what drove Mitt Romney's ballot, vis-a-vis the other candidates, was the question of electability. The more he stood on the stage with the clown show that we mm-hmm. put on, uh, the uh, the better he did. He was the only plausible person, you know, on the on the stage. When Newt Gingrich had a couple of good debate performance, his electability number rose. Romney's declined, but Romney's ballot strength was never driven ideologically. It was always driven uh, through an electability question in the primary. So that makes the question mm-hmm. of why he moved so far to the right on all these immigration issues particularly as someone who is from outside of Washington and adopted essentially the position of the congressional brand, Mm -hmm. which is totally toxic with Latinos. In 2004, George Bush got over 40% of the Latino vote. We were having discussions in 2004, 2005, about how to grow that vote share to 50%. We believed it was within, that it was plausible that we could push that to 50%. We're now in an election where we're talking about whether he can get to 25% or whether he can get to 30%. And if you look at the demographic changes in this country, and certainly you see the annihilation of the Republican Party as an effective institution in this state because of the collapse of uh, the Latino support. But if you look at Latino population trends in Iowa, in North Carolina, Florida, obviously, Even Ohio. but also any one of a number Virginia. of states that you don't, you know, particularly mm. think of, you know, as, as quote unquote Latino states, you know, this will render uh, the Republican Party over the next generation into a regional party. Um, you know, the, 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 the consequences of it are just profound. And so even if Mitt Romney has a couple of great debates here, it may be that that decision is what is the balance in a very close election. Mm between him being um, uh, the next president of the United States and, you know, uh, uh, a former nominee. The, the, the basic math uh, is that Obama won, as we said, a combined 80 percent of all non-white voters in 2008. They were 26 percent of the electorate. If he wins at least 80 percent again, and they are at least 26 percent again, they're now 29 percent of eligible voters, by the way, so it could even go up. But if it's 80 and 26 again... Uh, Romney has to win 61% of white voters yep. to get to a national majority. And to put that into perspective, um, Reagan in 80, Eisenhower in 52, Bush in 88, three best performances ever by a Republican challenger among whites, all between 56 and 61. So it's conceivable he could run about as well as any Republican challenger ever among whites and lose. Absolutely. And I wonder what the reaction would be in the party if that is the way this plays out. If he loses the election... Um, there will be the beginnings of a proper civil war in the Republican Party. I mean, everybody will blame everybody. I mean, part of the lesson will be that the establishment candidate won again. He wasn't conservative enough. 
Um, you know, the conservatives will blame the establishment and, and vice versa, but there will be a, a period of, you know, great consternation and great conflict, I mean, inside the, you know, inside the party on this. And, and if you look, and one of the things you know, is very clear, I mean, you know, when Rush Limbaugh, um, you know, calls that young lady a slut mm -hmm. earlier in the campaign, if you're running a political campaign for president, and you're looking for those moments of character where you can show the middle of the electorate that you have the strength and courage to stand up to the extremes of your own base. But it's literally like finding a sack of a million dollars laying in the middle of the street. Oh, how, how can I be so lucky that this could happen to me? But, but was afraid to do it. And when you look at the demographics, right. which represent you know, a fundamental problem for the, for the country, so I think that the Limbaugh radio audience, you know, I think the average age is 68 years old, um, it's, it's, a, it's an older white male demographic right. that's completely, you know, at odds with the, with the changing demographics of the country. And if you're held hostage to that demographic and you can't communicate to the demographics that are going to decide who's in majority parties for the, for the next generation, and it's just an enormous, it's an enormous you know, structural you, problem. A, you know, absolutely. I mean, you, first of all, in the Republican primary, over 90% of the total voters in the primaries based on the exit polls were white. Over 60% were over 50. It was a very older, whiter uh, primary, which, which had enormous kind of um, a leash kind of effect on, obviously, we saw on immigration. The other one that you mentioned, though, was, was clearly important, too, because if you look at the polling today, if you think about whites as a quadrant, you know, as, as many, you know, political uh, campaigns do, college-educated men, college-educated women, non-college men, non-college women, three of those four quadrants are going, Obama's vote is an all, almost certain to go down from 08. I mean, he's... Yeah. But the college-educated white women, who are the most socially liberal, and the only part of the white electorate that's growing, right. he won 52% of them last time, and he is polling, he is hanging in there, right around there, right. this time, presumably largely around those social issues. Clearly totally around the social issues. I mean, if you look back to the Republican primaries, I mean, I've, I've been married for 12 years now, and outside of my marriage, in a country of 330 million people, I have no idea how any other person uses birth control, with the exception of Rick Santorum. Mm -hmm. And I and I have and I have and I have um, no idea why he wants to talk to me about it uh -huh. um, or to anyone about it. And certainly that it's not a you know major threat to the country. But when when you insist on branding the party around these issues, um, mm -hmm. and you know we're not talking about pro-life versus pro-choice here. We're talking about contraception and whether it's dangerous or not. We're talking about medical procedures mandated by the state preceding a legal procedure. No matter how you view that procedure, it is, in fact, you know, legal under the, the laws of the, of the land here. And so even you, when you have a, a, a demographic of women out there that should be um, you know, open to the Republican fiscal message, the economic mm -hmm. growth messages, they can't, get next to, they can't get past the R next to the name increasingly in suburbs all over the country, yeah. and it's an enormous problem. If you look at the gender gap numbers um, in the race right now, you know, that's got to be very alarming for the Romney campaign and, as well. And nationally, at least, much bigger upscale than downscale. Yeah, now, of course, the reverse is true, which is that, you know, while we're saying that Mitt Romney has yeah. to get to about 60% of whites to win, he has a shot to do it. Which, which, you know, uh, Obama already in 08, first winner ever to lose whites by double digits and win 55-43 in the exit poll, but this time struggling even to get to 40 percent. Um, what does that say about the Democrats and their agenda and their ability to sell an agenda to what is still the majority white population? Well, I, I think that it is still structurally a center-right country. 
um, and that I think that it is difficult, and I think that they have done an amazingly good job out of it, uh, of advocating a, a you know uh, a policy agenda that I would not describe as center left. I would describe as left, um, you know, to the country. And part of the reason they're able to do that is all these other uh, issues that we mm -hmm. talked about. Certainly, it is true that if Romney does, in fact, um, get the white vote at the level that we're talking about him getting is able to win the presidency with it. He will be the last Republican candidate able to do that. The mm -hmm. demographics of the country, even four years from now, will be such that that is an impossibility mm -hmm. at the you know at the current at the current demographic trends. But uh, we live in a uh, we live in a polarized country um, where uh, you, you know from an ideologically ideological right. perspective um, it remains closely divided. But these demographics. All of them are trending away from the yeah, Republican and, Party. And, you know, as I was saying, even the 61 number, which is daunting enough, assumes no increase in the minority share of the right. vote. If, if, it, if it at all realizes the growth in the eligible voter population, it all translates into the electorate, you're talking 62 right. or 63. I mean, just really kind of, and while losing a majority of, the, of right. the upscale white women. I mean, you've got to win basically two thirds of everybody else. And, and you can look in this state, you know, this is a, um, you know, I think California is an interesting state in a lot of ways. If we're, so much of the, you know, 20th century, or in fact, really, you know, from you know from 1849, you know, through the last 20 years, it was a trendsetter for so much of what was good in the country. Um, just because it is now a trendsetter for much of what is bad in the country, does not mean it is not a trendsetter anymore. Mm -hmm. And if you look at it from a from a political perspective, you know, the Republican Party is on a very rapid trend line in this state because of the issues with women voters, because of the issues with Latino voters, that it will soon, within a decade, a little bit more, be the third party in the state. It will rank behind the decline of state uh, mm -hmm. registrations. And it is, um, it, is, uh, it is increasingly, and in my view, it's, it's really effectively collapsed as an institution in the state, which has a warping effect on the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party in this state doesn't resemble anything as much mm. as the Democratic Party in other states. It's really a public employee union party, mm. and it's bankrupting the state. So then uh, let's talk and bring, we'll bring the rest of our colleagues out in a moment. Sure. But let's, let me ask you, Romney is in the game again, in your view. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, what has to happen for him to get over the top? The numbers for the president have generally been better in the key swing states than nationally, upper Midwest in particular. What has to happen for Romney to get there over these final 30 days? Well, I, I think it, at, the, at a macro level, um, you know, the decision that voters have to make. Remember, we live now in an age where people are already voting for president. There's no such thing as Election Day anymore. The voting period in a lot of states has begun. But what's the decision that people are making? They're making a decision, you know, at the end of the day, are we going to fire that guy and hire this guy? And if he continues on the trend line of performance that he's had, you know, that small group that's in the middle, uh, all the evidence suggests is still persuadable, is probably going to reach the conclusion, yes, we should fire that guy and hire this guy. Because this guy seems like he has a plan. This person seems like he's competent. And in fact, even though the unemployment rate did come below 8%, people still think the country's on the wrong track. And even though there's more positive energy on the economy, people still think that the economy's bad, particularly in the states where... Um, wait, wait, so you said the trajectory that he's on. You think that Obama is the one who now has to reverse the dynamic? Well, no, I, I, I think that, you know, I think that Obama, you know, certainly through the debates, 
um, cannot continue to perform at the level he performed in the first debate. I mean, I think that if he does perform at that level in the first debate, I do think Mitt Romney's going to wind mm -hmm. up being president of the United mm -hmm. States. I mean, all of the structural advantages that the, that, that the president has going into the race, we've talked about some of them, plus the fact that he's had a really good campaign. Um, they've defined Mitt Romney, and, and the Romney campaign has made a lot of mistakes and missed a lot of opportunities. You know, the, the, the result of that first debate is the doom and gloom over the Republican right. Party, you know, that has existed over the horrible months of August and September is totally and completely lifted. It has wiped out Mitt Romney's uh, bad September. Yeah. It's given him a reboot. It's a structurally very close race. I still think the president has the advantage, uh, but he's going to have to do a lot better in these debates or that advantage will slip away. Yeah, the last question before I bring everybody else out. Sure. If you look at the polling, I mean, it really goes to your point, which is there, there seems to be th some thin slice of voters I don't know what it is, four, five, six, maybe 7% mm -hmm. of the most, who is dissatisfied with Obama's first term, who aren't really sure about giving him another term, but today are betting on him rather than Romney, largely because they believe Obama at least understands and empathizes with their life, sure. and Romney does not. Well, if you look at... And that's the, kind, of a, you, it's kind of an unstable ground but, but to if you be look resting at, on. If you, look at a, if you look at the arc of a presidential campaign, what does the challenger have to do? There's a bar out there that they have to clear, and it's plausibility as commander-in-chief. And if you look at Mitt Romney, from the Clint Eastwood empty chair to the comments on the September 11th attacks mm -hmm. to the failure to mention the troops in Afghanistan to the 47% comments, he, pull, he pushed himself further and further back from that bar over the month of September. And before those people, even people who are dissatisfied with Obama, even people who are ideologically inclined to vote for Romney, he has to present himself as a plausible commander-in-chief. And I would argue he did not accomplish that until he had that debate performance yeah. the other night. And I think that pulled him much closer to the bar now. So I think if Mitt Romney continues to perform at the level we saw him perform at, I, I don't think they have much room for many more turnovers and mistakes. Mm -hmm. It's like a championship football game. Very rarely do you see the team that throws five interceptions you know, win, the, you know, win, the, win the game. And so I think that you know, he, is, he is out of chances for mistakes, but if he is able to keep his momentum going, uh, if he is able to, uh, to, to make a case, about where he wants to lead the country, about where the president's deficiencies have been. He does have a chance to, you know, get elected, clearly, for, for a lot of reasons. All right, let's enlarge the conversation and bring out our, uh, our colleagues. Come on down, as they say in the... Uh... Steve's going to stay with us. Come on out. Dan Yankelovich, you just sit next to Steve. Uh, just, just next to Steve. Sam Popkin from local UCSD, James Fowler, also of uh, UCSD, and my colleague James Fallows, not to be confused with James Fowler. James Fowler. All right. James Fallows, I'm going to put you on the spot, even though you're uh, uh, just recently arrived here. You recently wrote a, a, a terrific piece in The Atlantic. Uh, analyzing the strengths and weaknesses of Mitt Romney and uh, President Obama as debaters. And you cautioned that there was more risk in this than many people thought for the president. But among the dangers that you identified the, for the president, you did not include in them narcolepsy. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering uh, your take on the same question I asked uh, Steve Schmidt. What, what are kind of the series of events that you think could produce a performance that was so, not only so off, but so listless? 
I'll say that, that one of the, the people I interviewed to do this story was my friend Sam Hopkin, who's here from UCSD. And one of the points he makes very powerfully in his book, The Candidate, and that I saw when I worked long ago for Jimmy Carter, uh, when both preparing him for the debates against incumbent Gerald Ford and then uh, from afar when he was going against Ronald Reagan, is the job of being president should equip you perfectly to be a debater, but actually it doesn't because uh, your life is, you know, you have the most pressed for time of anybody on earth. Uh, at, at any given moment, a debate practice session gets crowded out by war and peace and all, all things which just seem much more important. Also, and I think a profoundly significant um, temptation for all presidents is to, since there, there's no time other than a debate when they stand on equal footing with another American citizen, to have the idea that really they're going to be challenged by somebody to their face. I think for, for even people of modest intelligence, you can kind of get the big head. And for somebody like Obama, he probably can think, this guy Romney, you know, he can't lay a glove on me. So all these things sort of come together. And we had that performance, which was... Um, I had warned of something like this, but I actually was uh, dumbfounded, not by how well Romney did, but, but how, how poorly the president did. We have seen presidents, Sam, have difficulty in the incumbents in the first debate before. People talk about Bush yes. in, 80, in 04, well, Reagan one of them, in 84. Uh, um, uh, how did this rank, in your view, in terms I of... I have uh, to say, this is probably the least good incumbent performance. <laughs> and I, I think... I, I knew it would be a poor performance compared to what people thought. But I didn't expect the perfect storm where, first of all, all presidents avoid debate practice and all presidents hate it because you're being questioned on your motives in a way to your mm. face nobody has done since Joe the Plumber with, with, a, with a president. They may say, sir, the masses are unhappy or the people <laughs> don't yet understand. But it's not the same as, as having somebody look you in the face. And I realized that's why I was brought in as an outsider to put it to Jimmy Carter in, 70, in 1980 as the Ronald Reagan surrogate. And I got very worried the minute I heard that John Kerry was going to mm-hmm. be the surrogate. Because number one, John Kerry wants to be Secretary of State. So are you really going to go in there and offend the president and get him so mad he wants to have your kneecaps broken? Um, Number two, is he going to be as agile as Stuart Stevens had um, W, Governor Bush in 2000? Is he going to be quick and learn the, the material? And this is the first time in history that they've now brought in a coach for the surrogate, bringing in Bob Barnett Mm -hmm. to help them. Mm -hmm. So I expected poor. I didn't expect sleepy. (laughs) Uh, Dan? Well, for uh, Romney, it was life and death. And one of the things you might say about Obama is maybe he doesn't have the killer instinct. Because this would have finished... Romney off. And so Romney had to. And I I am startled by the extent to which he was able to narrow this likability gap. The other disparities are not, were not as huge. And within a single evening. Hmm. uh, So it it depended on his uh, life and death performance and uh, Obama inadvertently obliged. And I, I, you know, I don't know whether uh, it was, everybody has a bad night. Yeah. What 
things that Sam is saying is the case. Altitude is a possibility. Uh, uh, Al Gore thinks so, yeah. yes. Um, James Fowler, uh, um, in, this, in this, you know, I, I kind of feel sometimes when I'm covering politics now because of the, of the way social media has developed and the internet has developed that I'm living in a, in a pin, underneath a glass in a pinball machine where everything just keeps bouncing and lights are going and there's all of this noise, you know, constantly on Twitter and on, online. But I wonder if the effect of that is to compound the impact of a bad night like this or to dilute it because it just there's something else almost immediately. Uh, is, there, is there a reinforcing or a, or a dispersion? Yeah, so I was watching Twitter the night of the, the debate and I was really fascinated because I think everyone thinks that what Twitter is doing is it's allowing everyone to have an equal voice. But in fact, what you saw was that there would be a very small number of people who would come up with creative tweets that just captured exactly what had just happened in the debate, and then everybody would be retreating them. And it's, it's the same thing we've known for 50 years. You have opinion leaders. And this is exemplified you know, in a lot of our own research. We just did an experiment on Facebook in the 2010 elections with 61 million people. And we looked at 6 million people on Facebook with validated voter records. And in that experiment, we saw that there were about 60,000 people who voted because Facebook told them to vote, but when their friends told them to vote, that got out an extra 280,000 people. And so it's not the message that's being sent directly that's going to have the biggest impact. It's how it's amplified as it goes through these social networks. And I think that's the real power of these online social media. They're tapping into these real-world social networks that we've always had and showing us just how powerful a very small set of people can be. Well, let, me, let me stay there for a minute, because I mean, one of the things that campaigns feel is obviously historic. The, the model of the way the campaigns communicated with the electorate was, was kind of vertical. I mean, you you kind, of, you know, kind of came out directly, or you raised money, it went up to headquarters, and it came back out in the form of television ads. Now there's, mu- there's enormous focus on trying to create horizontal networks of communication, where you provide people information and basically ask them to kind of, you know, disperse it among their uh, their networks of contacts. Um, and yet they're still spending, I think, over a billion dollars on television in this campaign. In this period. Uh, which is more effective, do you think? Is, is the conventional, the, the historic approach of raise a lot of money, pound a lot of television still the best way to change the dynamics of an election? Or is this other form, this kind of networking form, uh, becoming increasingly important? Networking. And no one's doing it yet. And so, you know, I was talking about this with Nico Maley the other day, and, and he was saying, you know, Obama raised a billion dollars on the Internet and spent all of it on television. Yeah. Right? And that's even true in this election. Like, everyone's talking about the internet, the internet, but all the money is still going out to television ads. It's because the campaigns aren't looking at the friends. What our research shows is that for every one person whose behavior was changed by a single message on Facebook on election day, there were four friends people's uh, behavior who was changed. And that kind of multiplier, someone's going to figure that out. Someone's going to figure out that it's not just changing the target's behavior, it's getting the message to spread from person to person to person. And you cannot beat the exponential power of the network once you're able to figure out what kinds of messages are going to spread that way. Steve? I... I largely agree with it. I, you know, television advertising has been overstated in importance in presidential campaigns for a long time. The free media narrative is much more important to the outcome of a race and a moving numbers. And ideally, when it's the free media narrative and the uh, paid advertising narrative, you know, working together, you're going to have you're going to have the best result. But you know, it used to be advertising in a political campaign was top down. It was uh, an assertion of here's what I want you to know about me. You all evaluated whether it was credible or not or relevant. In a social media world, what matters much more is what all of you say about me, the, me, the candidate. But 
all of this, whether it's corporate advertising, corporate communications, uh, political communication, all of it has to work together now symphonically. And so you can't have an effective communication strategy in a campaign with a weak advertising strategy, a strong free media strategy, and a bad social media strategy. It's all of it needs to needs to be synced up and working together. Sam, Sam, I've been in the camp in my political reporting career that has been, like Steve, very skeptical of the impact of paid advertising in television campaigns and presidential campaigns, as opposed to races down ballot about which there's less other information. But in this race, the impact, there does seem to clearly be an impact in the battleground states of the Obama campaign defining Romney. I mean, you kind of look at his favorable, unfavorable ratings, the share of people who say he cares about people like me. They do, and, and in particular, blue-collar voters, or as we just said, uh, other, in other states, kind of nationally, very skeptical of the president, doing much better among them in some of these battleground states where they've been exposed to the, can- the arguments against Romney. How do you kind of rate the importance of kind of the conventional kind of just carpet bombing in this campaign? Carpet bombing is like the arms race we had with the Soviet Union. If, we did, if, if each side had ended up with exactly half as many nuclear weapons, nothing would have been different except the budgets of the defense contractors or the national labs. But how do you get anybody to stop if the other side is going to outspend you? I mean, it, there's clearly a ceiling at, that's been hit a long time ago on, on the spending. But as long as you have the, the fact that a person can spend as much money as they want on their own campaign, the old Buckley decision, you're going to have enormous amounts of money dumped in there, whether or not it matters. Dan? Well, I think that uh, the effectiveness of uh, being defined by the Democrats was enormously helped by Mitt Romney and by Mother Jones, the 47 percent. So that you don't often have a situation where the advertising is saying one thing and the world cooperatively comes in and endorses it. I think that's where the power came from. Let me ask you to stick with you and and move back down the panel. Something Steve brought up, which I think was uh, was certainly a belief in the Romney campaign and and more widely fell through the Republican Party, that this this election was almost like a mathematical equation. 8.3% unemployment, 65% of Americans saying we're on the wrong track. Uh, uh, you know, very modest expectations of economic improvement even now. I mean, it's still, still uh, pretty modest. Therefore, you know, A plus B plus C equals uh, fire the president, fire the incumbent. It has obviously turned out to be much more complicated than that. Why do you think the, uh, the, the weak economy and the, and the sense of wrong, that the country's on the wrong track has not produced a stronger impetus to simply replace the incumbent? Let me start with Dan and work down yeah. the panel. Um, I think that character is what logicians call a necessary but not sufficient condition for winning the presidency. Uh, you can't, you, you, character may not be enough by itself to win the presidency, but you're not going to win if you fail on the character mm-hmm. problem. And Romney was failing on that. He was a cardboard figure. He seemed to be more personally ambitious he was not, he didn't, people didn't identify with him. So uh, character is one of those truisms, I think, that goes, the constancy that goes back to our whole political history. The first piece I ever wrote on politics was in March 1960. It was the lead article in Life magazine that existed at that time. And I, 
I'd like to, ma I'd like to read the first paragraph. Read the first paragraph. Um, wanted, and this, there was U.S. voters' image of ideal president, 1960, uh, Nixon, Kennedy. Wanted, a man of conviction who is willing to fight for his principles, but who is able by conciliation and compromise to avoid such a fight. A man who is above partisan considerations, a man with the common touch, a vigorous, decisive man who can make up his mind, get things done, and not be pushed around by other people. Yeah. Now, it's interesting. Yes, it, it holds up pretty well. It's interesting that that, that, was, uh, that was Mitt Romney's objective. Yeah. Sam, uh, why has the economic dissatisfaction not produced a more straightforward... Every, every candidate has a moral firewall that they rely on when they have to change some political plan or argue about how good they are and whether they mean what they're saying. And you're, you have two planks to your moral firewall. You can say, you can count on me to do this because I'm a Republican, or you can count on me to do this because of who I am as a person. Well, as a person, Mitt Romney started out with two strikes against him. Number one, he's a Mormon. As a Jew, I didn't realize until 2008 how many people don't, re don't consider Mormons to be valid parts of the Christian faith. I just knew Mormons as these wonderful graduate students who have seen the world and now want to study it. And number two, you can look at the Pew studies. Rich people are considered smarter and harder working than the rest of us, but also greedy, and it's not clear how trustworthy they are. So you've got this problem, and then unlike Ronald Reagan, unlike George W. Bush, unlike Bill Clinton, his attacks were from the right in the primary, and that's when they lurched. If you want a one-issue campaign on jobs, then you have to get the other issues off the table. If you don't want to be ambushed, you have to have flankers to clear the way. And they just acted as if we're going to define it as one issue and not, they can't do anything about it with immigration, gay marriage, contraception, whatever. James? So I just want to make two points. Um, clearly the economy matters, but I hear people say unemployment, unemployment, unemployment. And if you look at the models the political scientists use to predict the outcome of elections, unemployment's not in those models. What's in those models is real disposable income growth, which is you know, how much people who have jobs, how much their income is growing. And that the reason for that is that typically the people who are most affected by unemployment are also least likely to vote. And so I think that there are also um, other economic indicators that are, are more important, and those are actually not doing that bad now. So that's number one. In absolute terms, they're not doing that bad. Number two, um, what you have now that's unusual is that although things are bad, we've gone from worst, worst to bad. Yeah. And so things have gotten better. Um, and so I know it's hard to kind of believe that, but, but it's that change that also I think is, is sort of making this more complex this year. You know, change of expectations, James. We, yeah. uh, I, I spent July 4th, uh, as I do every year, interviewing voters in the Denver yeah. suburbs and, and talked to about 45 people. And, and my one-sentence conclusion of the day was that w from the whole day was that Ronald Reagan's famous question, are you better off yeah. than you were four years ago, was less relevant precisely because fewer people expect it to be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's been a long time since uh, the late Clinton presidency where we saw kind of sustained growth of so, that sort. So in my position here is extreme position on the, the panel. I have two contrarian cases to make. One is I'm going to speak up in favor of Mitt Romney on the character issue. 
believe it or not. I mean, we wonder how it is that somebody of such personal moral probity as a family man, his Mormon background, his testimony from, from all of his friends that we saw in the non-prime part, part, of the, part of the convention, how could he change his positions with seemingly no inner stress whatsoever? And I think from his point of view, he's not being deceptive. You know, his presentation is he's going to come in there and fix it. And it's, so he's not pr- promising ahead of time to do it with this policy or that policy. He's just selling himself as a management consultant who will fix the mess. And so I think that's why he can, in consistency with his own self-image as a good man, uh, have this wildly varying presentation. On the firing the, the incumbent calculation, my experience back in the Jimmy Carter days is it's actually harder to do this than we think. Remember all the things that Jimmy Carter had going against him in 1980. Prime interest rate that spring was 21%. He'd been challenged by Teddy Kennedy in the primaries as if Hillary Clinton were running against Obama now as opposed to supporting him. He'd had the Iran disaster as opposed to the Osama bin Laden rescue mission. Uh, His cabinet was in chaos. He'd fired some, others had quit. And he was running against Ronald Reagan, not against Mitt Romney. And still it was very close. I mean, it was close until the end when it was not close anymore. And so if you look at most other re-election runs, the fire the incumbent argument actually is pretty hard to make. There is a lot of sort of um, tailwind behind the Steve, incumbent. Can I ask you, because the, the focus, we focus a lot on Romney and his personal deficiencies, but he has really, over the course of these two years, and as Jim was suggesting, really the last six years, tried to accommodate himself to the party rather than the other way around. He's really tried to make himself very much in the mainstream on all the major issues where he might have been um, uh, divergent. So to what extent are his difficulties a statement about a larger problem about the agenda and whether the agenda as now formulated, we talked about the problems of the Democratic Party and their agenda, but is the Republican agenda inherently a majority agenda at this point? I, I guess I, I would dispute the notion that there's something structurally wrong with, with Mitt Romney through, you know, through, through the process in the way that you described. I think the problem that Mitt Romney has had is Mitt Romney hasn't told Mitt Romney's story, and he let the Obama campaign tell Mitt Romney's story, and it reduced him to a cartoon character. Um, I think that one of the defining issues of our time is the collapse of trust in nearly every major institution in the country. And you can look at from Penn State to major religious organizations to business to politics to government to the political parties and so on and so forth. Really every institution in the country, with the exception of the U.S. military, of all the institutions that have lost trust. There is no institution that's had a more catastrophic loss of trust than the financial services institution, of which Mitt Romney comes out of. And I think structurally, you know, that has been very, very difficult for him, uh, you know, to deal with, you know, uh, holistically in the electorate as a, you know, as a, as a character issue. But I think he's a person of impeccable personal virtue, and they just haven't told the story. Sam, is there, is there an agenda issue? I agree with Steve. I, I don't think he has, I don't think this is an inherent problem. If you could be named Rockefeller and get elected governor of Arkansas, senator from West Virginia, you've overcome a monopoly that, that was disliked so badly, you can do it. You can be a, a Goldman Sachs and work in New Jersey for years and then become a governor and a senator. But you have to work at overcoming it, not take it for granted that your competence will carry the day. And so that is a a fault of the presentation, I agree. There's nothing about it. Bain is more difficult than if you're Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or, or, or Google because it's financial services and nobody quite understands how you get rich 
moving the pieces around, but it certainly could have been done. He could have said, I learned how to dismantle, and now I, and I know how to build, and here's what I'm going to do. He never segued from what I do at Bain to what I do for the country. And in fact, uh, James, it, it, was, it was the Obama campaign that made the opposite argument, that in his private career, he enriched the few at the expense of the many, and those are the same values that he would bring to public policy. I mean, they, they were the ones who tried to uh, draw a meaning out of the Bain experience that had relevance for the agenda. I mean, that, that is, that is the, the connection that the Obama campaign has tried to, and clearly in polling, at least in swing states, has made for many voters. No, that's, that's absolutely right. And, and I, I think it really shows you the, the power of framing, right? So that's the one thing that campaigns do have control over is trying to figure out how can we take some issue that's salient to people now, what's on people's minds, and use that to our advantage to really portray how our candidate is going to bring something to the table that, that's going to solve this problem that's on people's minds. So let me ask each of you, uh, and we're going to bring in the audience for a minute and questions. One thing, the debate notwithstanding, where, where Romney kind of blurred some of the differences. I think pretty clearly if you look over the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the length of this campaign, we were talking about two parties that are now deeply, deeply divided across the full range of issues. I mean, whether it's uh, taxes, the future structure of Medicare and Medicaid, whether to go forward or repeal the health care bill, um, uh, Romney would uh, amend the Clean Air Act to completely eliminate the ability of the EPA to regulate carbon, you know, roll back all the various regulations on, on coal and autos. I and mean, there's a long list where they are deeply divided. But the odds are pretty high, as we were talking about before, that this election is going to show the country to be pretty closely divided, uh, regardless of which way it tips. So how do we go forward when we have two parties that are moving apart at least, uh, or at least as divergent in their prescription as, as at any point since Reagan and Carter in 80, if not Goldwater and Johnson in 64, and yet the country will be narrowly split between them. How will we, how do we go forward and kind of move forward on any of these issues, or are we just looking at more stalemate? Well, there's two parts of it. I, you, know, you know, for the entire history of the country, the art of politics is that it requires both sides who profoundly disagree with each other on all manner of issues with people who can't stand the sight of each other to sit across the table and to do the people's business and to come to some rational agreement on moving the country forward. And, and that has ceased. Part of the reason it has is because of the campaign finance laws now in place. We have pulled the money out of the campaign committees and away from the political parties, and they have always been moderating influences in American politics. And now the money has flowed to these outside groups that are ideological, imposing litmus tests. And so you have the incumbent members of Congress who are terrified of being taken out in a low turnout primary and are doctrinaire 100% of the time on 100% of the issues and are just absolutely uncompromising in a way that has made it difficult to govern the country. I, I think it's going to be a little bit easier than most people suppose. Like, for example, on the fiscal cliff. The main motivation for opposing Obama in the Senate has been to keep him from having any victories. Well, that's a motivation to keep Republicans cohesive and together. That'll be gone when the election is over. And particularly if Obama wins, as you say, the Republicans are going to be in total disarray. So you have uh, the unity of the Republicans and the fact that part of this debate that's going on in relation to an earlier question of yours is not, does not address the country. It's, it addresses a small part of the country. 
I think there's a civil war in the Republican Party whether or not Governor Romney wins. This is reminiscent. I always feel like I'm a Democrat back in the 70s and 80s when Senator Dodd was knocked off in the primaries, a campaign that had Joe Lieberman, Bill and Hillary Clinton, and a whole new cadre, and Tom Hayden knocked off John Tunney for not being left enough. I don't know what happens when you start knocking off your own senators, but it's not anything but something of a very serious internal fight. And Jeb Bush, I thought, had the best line of the year when he indirectly talked about the pledges, when he said, I don't believe in outsourcing my principles. And then Lindsey Graham, who has his own national ambitions, said something very similar. So I think you'll see I th- there's a struggle in the Republican Party. I think the Democrats should look back. Before you go back to the Democrats, does, does, does that mean that implied there's a camp in the Republicans who would be willing to work with a reelected Obama? Some Republicans would rather have half a loaf rather than none. And I don't know how that goes, but it's clear that some Republicans are passionately on the side of, of, of Governor, President Bush and, and Steve of opening up the party to Hispanics, forgetting about these issues that are guaranteed suicide, and getting back to the, to the, to the old, moderately conservative economic republicanism. You know, James, your, your, your research on how networks learn and how, how uh, influence reverberates through the network, parties are networks. Uh, what, is the le- what, what is the lesson you think Republicans would, what, what, what lesson each side would take if they lose in this election? What well, I'm actually happen? like a lot more worried about something more fundamental, and, and that's inequality. Um, so if you um, read uh, Keith Poole and Howard Rosenthal's and, and mm-hmm. Nolan McCarty's book on polarization in the United States, there's just this beautiful match to how inequality fell um, from the 30s to the 40s and 50s, and then started rising again. And it looks exactly like what's happened to polarization over the course of the 20th and earliest 21st centuries. And we don't know yet why there's the relationship, but my sense is that whenever you are in an environment of high inequality, it gives people on both the left and the right an opportunity to win with extreme arguments. And so I think if you want to solve polarization in this country, you have to solve inequality. And boy, there's probably not a more challenging problem. Or is it the other way around, right? I, I, you know, it's the jury's still out, um, but I, I personally think that inequality is driving it right the other way around. So, James, what, what, what do you think? If, if, uh, if Obama is reelected and there's a Republican House, either party controls the Senate, uh, can you see the environment in which it's, it's 1997 again and everybody says we have to make a deal? Um, I, I can see the environment with a part of my brain that in, relies on magical thinking. Mm. And, and just... <laughs> And, and, and to explain what, what, what I mean here, I've spent a lot of my working life outside the U.S., you know, seeing how, how we seem from other countries' perspectives. And in most ways, the U.S. looks tremendously robust, resilient, creative, except in the structure of our governance, which is 200-plus years old and very, very difficult to change. I think we see here in California that problems with the structure of governance can have really... Uh, really bad consequences. And at the national level, we've, we've overcome them in magical thinking type moments. For example, Obama got, what, 53% of the vote four years ago, but he was 70% popularity inauguration day. There was some willingness to believe uh, various times of, of uh, the fact that Bill Clinton is now the most popular man in the U.S., including among people who wanted to impeach him and, you know, uh, and uh, convict him for murder and all the rest. So there is some, some irrational yearning for uh, effectiveness which, that maybe will burble up. Steve, what, you know, we, we, we talked about, we, we, you and I talked about this before. 
country is a country that's now 37% non-white, according to the 20-cent census. 26% of the electorate in 2008 was non-white. 90% of John McCain's votes came from whites. It'll be at least that high for Mitt Romney, maybe even a little higher. Um, uh, is this simply an issue of the immigration question, or is there also, um, uh, you know, in terms of what, what it means for Hispanics, or what, what is kind of the range of responses that Republicans are going to need to... Uh, tap into what is this growing share of the country. Well, uh, first off, it, you, the, you know what drives the problem in the in the party is the tone out of the congressional brand in Washington. We have fantastic Hispanic Republican governor in New Mexico. We have fantastic Hispanic Republican governor in the state of Nevada. Uh, the brand there is totally different than the Washington brand. So you know, you start with going out and communicating to Hispanics that we're a hell of a lot better off as a country with you all here, with you all participating. This is for Republicans. You know, there's no demographic in the country that serves more readily or at higher percentages in the U.S. military, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we need to have a welcoming message, and we need to have literally a zero-tolerance uh, message for people who go out and demagogue these issues, you know, the Tom Tancredos of the world, including the entertainment and talk radio wing of the party. All right. Well, thank you all. Join me in thanking this terrific panel. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.